Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Again, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. This is God's Word. Please listen to it. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let us pray. Our gracious God, these are strong words from John the Baptist. And these are difficult words for us to hear in many ways. And so we pray, O Lord, that You would cause us to approach Your Word as we find it this morning in this passage with humility and with belief and with a heart that is willing to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is a God who speaks. God spoke, and from nothing, all that is was created. God spoke, and out of nothing, out of Abraham, he rose up a nation. God spoke. He spoke through the prophets, first through Moses, later through Isaiah and Jeremiah. And finally, He spoke through the prophet Malachi. Again and again, He used prophets to speak His Word. But then after Malachi, there was silence. There was silence for nearly 500 years. Not a word was uttered by a prophet of God. 
And the Lord prophesied that this would happen. He spoke through the prophet Amos, who lived almost 800 years before Jesus came. And he spoke these words in Amos chapter, 11, verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 11 to 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Now even after God had uttered these words to the prophet Isaiah, He continued to send prophets to His people up until the time of Malachi. And after Malachi, He cut His people off from His word. You see, God's people were guilty of neglecting God's revealed word and of profaning the revealed and holy name of God. Amos tells them this earlier in his book. And as a result, God told them that they would search for His Word, they would seek it, but that they would not find it. That there would be a drought, that there would be a famine in the land. And so God's people had been in the midst of a famine from the Word from the time of Malachi down to the time when John the Baptist began preaching during his ministry in the wilderness. Now the coming of John the Baptist was prophesied by Isaiah, but it was also prophesied by Malachi just before this famine of the Word began. And so we must see that John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. It was as if he had stepped off of the pages of 2 Kings right into the Jordan River. His was the voice of Isaiah 40, a voice crying in the wilderness. He was the messenger of Malachi chapter 3 who was sent to prepare the way before the coming of the Lord to His temple. He was the Elijah of Malachi 4 who was to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. His coming was the sure and certain sign that the Messiah was on His way, that the Messiah was to proceed. And that the Messiah was ushering in His kingdom. John the Baptist should have been an unmistakable sign that the Messiah was coming. That He was right on His heels. His people should have recognized it, if nothing else. And so the one who was to come after Him, Jesus Christ, should have been recognizable. He should have been unmistakable to God's people as well. And so as we consider this passage this morning, I would ask you to think on this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king sits as judge. Therefore, all people everywhere are called to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king sits on his throne as judge. Therefore, all people everywhere are called to repent. Now, for ease of understanding and viewing this passage, I've divided it up into three sections. The first is John the Preacher, verses 1 to 3. The second is John the Prophet, verses 4 to 10. And the, and the third is John the Baptist, verses 11 to 12. Again, John the Preacher, verses 1 to 3. John the Prophet, verses 4 to 10. And John the Baptist, verses 11 to 12. Well, let's first look at John the Preacher, verses 1 to 3. Now in the first two chapters of his gospel, Matthew has gone to great lengths to help us to understand that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. 
He's given us prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. He is the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament. And further proof of this is that John the Baptist, who is in verse 1 described as being in the wilderness of Judea, preaching. He is the proof, the further proof that we need. And Matthew gives only a brief description of John's message. But it's enough to see that his message had two parts. And it's enough to see that he is indeed the messenger who precedes the coming of the Lord. The first part of John's message was that he preached a message of repentance. He said in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The only proper response to the coming of the kingdom is repentance. And you see that when Jesus begins His preaching ministry in in chapter 4, verse 17, He preaches exactly the same message as John the Baptist. He preaches a message of repentance. Now we need to understand what is meant by repentance here. But repentance is more than just a changing of the mind. It includes that. But it is more than that. It is a complete turning. It is a turning away from one way of life, from one belief system, from one way of viewing the world, to God. We saw this as we worked our way through Ruth late last year. We saw that, that Ruth and Naomi, they turned from the land of Moab. They turned, especially Ruth, turned from her former gods, and she turned to the Lord. And so the, the passage there says that they returned to the land of Bethlehem. This was an idea. It gives you that, that picture of repentance. Well, this is very similar in concept to the Reformer's idea of repentance unto life. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance unto life this way. It says, Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. There's a a true sense of sin. There's an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. There's grief involved in this repentance. There's hatred of our sin. And so with all of these things, with all these things in mind, we turn from those things, we turn from them to God. It is an active turning. Well, the second part of John's message was the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And we need to see that as Matthew describes this, he uses the term kingdom of heaven. Luke, Mark use the term kingdom of God. They're the same. We're not to drive a wedge between our understanding of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Matthew, being a Jew, writing to a Jewish audience, would use the kingdom of heaven instead of using God's name there. The coming of God's kingdom is the reason John is preaching his message of repentance. When God's kingdom comes, God mean, God, that means that God is coming as judge. And John is declaring that people need to get themselves right before the Lord arrives. And as you read these words, were you struck by their heart, harshness? They are strong words. They are harsh words to our ears. And his words in verses 7 to 12 sound especially harsh to modern ears. Those words to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But we need to understand that God sending John to preach this message was in fact a very gracious provision of God. 
Now in the military, we were always very thankful when we had advance warning of, a, of an impending visit by a superior officer. We were always very thankful when someone would pop by, drop in the office, or drop by our barracks and say, guess what? The platoon commander is coming. The company commander is coming. The battalion commander is coming. Because it gave us a little bit of time to get ready, to prepare ourselves for His coming. This was a gracious thing on the part of our senior officers. And so we see John here as the advance guard. And he has graciously been sent to give people advance warning of the coming of their king, the judge, the supreme judge, who is coming with justice. And they have been given this gracious opportunity to make themselves ready for the coming of the Lord. Now John the Baptist gave advance warning about the coming of the king, but advance warning was also giving about the coming of John the Baptist. This is grace upon grace. In verse 3, Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. Matthew's point is not only did God graciously provide advance warning, but He gave advance warning about His advance warning. He doesn't want people to fall through the cracks. This is a gracious act on the Lord's part. Isaiah spoke this prophecy 750 years before the coming of John. God's people knew this prophecy. They understood it. They knew to expect the voice crying in the wilderness. And apparently they recognized it because verse 5 says that all people from Jerusalem and all Judea and all that region about the Jordan went out to him. They heard the call. They recognized that something was going on with John the Baptist. And they heeded the call. And it says that they, they repented. They were confessing their sins. And John the Baptist was baptizing them. Now certainly people bristled at John's message. Some probably went to, to hear it and to laugh. They wanted to find out what the fuss was all about. And it is certain that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not care for what John had to say to them. But the fact is that no sinner likes to be told that he is sinning. No sinner likes to be told that she needs to repent. We do not like to hear these words. And it doesn't matter if it's in John's day or in our day. When sinners are indulging in their sins, the last thing they want to hear is that what they're doing is wrong. The last thing they want to hear is that they need to turn from that sin and to embrace the Lord. And so, in our day, preaching repentance is seen as judgmental, it's seen as harsh, it's seen as angry, it's seen as having nothing to do with a God who is a God of love. But this is a distorted and incorrect view, isn't it? When God ordained that John should go before the Lord Jesus to to preach a message of repentance, it was a gracious decree on God's part. God was merciful in sending a messenger to prepare the way before the coming of Jesus. Now how do you receive it when you hear a message preached to you of repentance? How do I receive it? Do we receive it as a gracious message of God? Do we hear it for what it's worth? Or do we reject it? 
Do we say that it's mean or angry? Do we say that it cannot possibly be referring to me? I would challenge you to see the message of repentance as an act of God's grace and mercy, that He would send His messengers out to preach this message of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Judgment is afoot. The Lord is coming. And John will say later in this passage, I baptize with water, but the one who comes after me baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, let's look now at verses 4 to 10, John the prophet. The first three verses show John as a preacher who's proclaiming the message of repentance. And verses 4 to 10 show that John is also a prophet. Verse 4 gets right into the details of John's appearance and diet. And it says that he wore a garment of camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist. And he ate a diet of locusts and wild honey. This sounds very strange to our ears. Matthew does not quote specific passages in Malachi that prophesy the return of the prophet Elijah, but the description of John's attire is a clear indicator that this is the Elijah who is to come. 2 Kings gives this description of the prophet Elijah. 2 Kings 1 verse 8. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. It's almost an exact description of John the Baptist. The fact is that many prophets wore a garment of hair. It was a sign of their poverty. It was a sign of their outsideness uh, to the kingdom, uh, to the people of God. So people were coming to him throughout the region because of their suspicion that he was indeed the Elijah who had been prophesied in Malachi. And verse 6 says that John the Baptist, he baptized them in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And we'll take a look at John's baptism in the next section. But note what verses 5 and 6 are saying in terms of John's prophetic ministry. People are coming out of the woodwork to hear the prophetic word and to be baptized by this prophet. At the very least, these people recognize that John is someone special. The voice in the wilderness after 500 years of silence is drawing people out. They want to see if this is indeed the work of the Lord. And that would include even the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And John's message to them as they come down to the river to be baptized is the most Old Testament prophet-like, isn't it? He says in verse 7, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He does not mince words with these men. And in the verses that follow, John gives evidence of his prophetic insight. He tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He seems to know that they are thinking, that they are descendants of Abraham. And so he tells them that this means nothing. It means nothing that they were descendants of Abraham. God could raise up from the stones children of Abraham. He doesn't need them. John was not about to give these religious leaders a seal of approval through baptism just so they could curry favor with the masses, just so they could show that they went through and jumped through the hoops. The Pharisees and Sadducees were treating John's baptism like some sort of a ritual that must be completed. But John was reserving his baptism for those who exhibited a true repentance. 
Because it was indeed a true sign, an outward sign of an inward repentance. Because you see, God does not see as we see. God does not look at the outward appearance. He does not look at what's on the external part of things. He looks at our hearts. He knows whether there's true repentance or not. And so John mentions this bearing fruit in keeping with repentance because fruit is the proof of repentance. If there is true repentance, then the person's life will demonstrate it. Good works are those fruit. John's warning to those who do not bear fruit is stern. Verse 10 says, Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You either bear good fruit or you don't. You either bear fruit in keeping with repentance or you bear fruit in keeping with your evil roots. And so John is saying those who do not bear good fruit, those who do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance will be cut down. They will be thrown into the fire. John is not talking here of mere pruning of dead branches, is is he? He's talking about the cutting down of entire trees. Well, let's turn now and look at verses 11 and 12. John the Baptist. John was certainly a prophet cast in the mold of Elijah. There's no denying it. He is the Elijah to come. But he was chiefly known as John the Baptist, not John the prophet. And John says of his baptism in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. He baptizes for repentance with water. And as we've seen, John preached a message of repentance. And his baptism is closely connected with that message. The two go hand in hand. He cannot do one without the other. He cannot baptize without preaching the message. It is a baptism of repentance. It is a once for all baptism. And it was akin to the baptism of Gentile proselytes to Judaism. When a Gentile would come into Judaism, they had to be baptized. But the main difference here is that that John is not baptizing Gentiles primarily. He's baptizing Jews. He's baptizing the very people who are supposed to be in the kingdom of God. He's baptizing the ones who, for all uh, indicators, don't need to repent, isn't he? John's baptism of Jews demonstrated that they were just as much outside the kingdom of heaven as the Gentiles were. They were just as much in need of repentance as the Gentiles. You see, the Jews were not not grandfathered into this new system, this new covenant of the kingdom of heaven. It didn't matter that their father was Abraham. What mattered was that they had turned away from their sin and believed in the Lord. And John's baptism signified that repentance, that turning. Now there's great similarity. John's baptism is not identical with the baptism that Jesus instituted in Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus' baptism is required that people be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so John's baptism and Jesus' baptism are not the same. They're close. And Acts chapter 19 verses 3 to 5 shows us this, that those who were baptized by John had to be baptized again with a Christian baptism. And John understood this. We see this 
in this passage. He understood that his baptism was preparatory to the coming of God's kingdom. He understood that his role was that of a mere servant of the one to come. And in that light, he says in verse 11, But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John sees himself as a servant, but not a high servant, not a servant of a high king. He sees himself as a lowly servant, a servant who can't even pick up his master's shoes. John's humility is true humility. And he recognizes that his message of repentance, his baptism baptism of repentance, does not equal the baptism that is to come. Because Jesus' baptism was a baptism of salvation on the one hand, and a baptism of judgment on the other. You see, for the true believer in Christ, Jesus' baptism meant being refined by the Holy Spirit, by the fire of the Holy Spirit. It meant that all of those imperfections that you have as a sinner will be refined, they'll be purified, they'll be burned off, and you will be made perfect. But for the unbeliever, it meant being consumed by the fiery wrath of God. That's what it continues to mean. And John makes this clear in verse 12. He says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The judgment is nigh. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is coming to sit on His throne. This is the great day of the Lord, of which Malachi 4.1 speaks, which says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. When the winnowing process was being carried out, when the grain was tossed up in the air and the chaff was blown against the wall, the grain fell back down and was clean, the chaff and all of the trash that was left behind after the grain had been separated out was used in various ways. But its primary use was for fuel. It was very flammable. And so John is saying that when Jesus comes, Jesus, who will make His entrance as a grown man in verse 13... When He comes, He is coming to bring judgment on the earth. And He will pour out fire. Now John does not understand the phases in which this will happen. He does understand that it won't come immediately, that it comes later. But he does know that it is coming. Well, John's words at the Jordan River must have stood out in stark contrast to the 500 years of prophetic silence. John's words must have come like a flood current to those who had been without God's Word all that time. For those who had experienced that spiritual drought and famine, his words were either like a cold drink of water or they were like a scorching fire. And yet John was the voice in the wilderness of Isaiah 40. It says he was to speak words of comfort to Jerusalem. And yet most in our day would argue that John's words here are anything but comforting. 
But let me ask you this. What greater words of comfort are there to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins? Those who are facing judgment than a call to repentance? Would it have been better for God to let them go along on their own? Never calling them to repentance? To continue on their inevitable path to destruction? When a sinner heeds the call to repent, the angels in heaven rejoice. The call to repentance is one of the most merciful messages we as Christians are privileged to give. It is not judgmental because we know that every sinner, every person is a sinner. Everyone is in need of repentance. It is merciful to proclaim the need for repentance, even to those who will ultimately reject it. And so if you bristle, anytime you hear that message of repentance, anytime you hear the message of the gospel, anytime you hear me or someone else speak of your need to repent, if you bristle, instead of seeing it as a mean-spirited and judgmental uh, message, try instead to see it as a merciful plea. The call to repentance is coupled with with the message that Jesus Christ has endured the wrath that you deserve. That He took it upon Himself on the cross. It is merciful because if you repent and you embrace Him in belief, you will not bear that wrath. You will receive eternal blessings in the Lord. And so from that we can see that it is out of God's mercy that He has sent a messenger to prepare the way for the coming of the King. Repent. Repent of your sins. Turn to the Lord in faith. Embrace Him. Then you can live in His kingdom forever. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that You would help us to see the message of repentance as a merciful message. And we pray, O Lord, that if we bristle at it, that You would help us to receive it with humility. Give us eyes to see our own sinfulness. Root it out, O Lord, we pray. And bring us into renewed and ever faithful obedience to Your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.